1: And hello there and you're very welcome along to Thursday's Late Lunch. This is Barbara Scully here again. I hope your Thursday's going well so far and that you'll stay with us. We have, as usual, a very varied, interesting programme coming your way for the next two hours. Among other things, we're going to be talking about the abuse that women journalists get online and what they should or shouldn't do about it. And we'll also be talking about how we can best help our teenagers through the state exams, which are coming up next month. And we're hearing about an all new all-woman comedy show which is going to happen in Dublin next month. But first I wonder did you see the photos online of Martha Stewart posing in her swimwear for an American magazine cover. Now Martha Stewart for those of you who may not be familiar with her is a kind of an American Nigella Lawson although she's a lot older than Nigella Lawson. She made her name and fortune being a kind of domestic goddess on telly I think she went to jail for a few for a wee bit as well. Something to do with insider trading or other. But the main thing about these photos is that Martha Stewart is 81 she doesn't look 81 she actually could pass easily for 41 um but, you know, who knows what's real in photos that we see any any, any more. Uh, but along with possible uh, Photoshop, she's clearly had quite a bit of work done. There isn't a saggy chin or a wrinkle to be seen, which is grand. Good for her. She says she's had no plastic surgery, but I'm sure there's a lorry load of Botox and errors in the gym and thousands and thousands of dollars spent on hair and skincare. And as I say, good for her if that's what she wants to do. My problem with that is that it... it, it perpetuates this idea that this is something to be lauded and something wonderful and is it why is it that women can't look their age why can't we celebrate women without remarking on their appearance um and i mean you know most of us don't have the kind of financial resources that martha stewart would have and i think there's plenty of other things we can spend our precious euros on rather than very expensive cosmetic treatments which let's be clear cannot anti-age you. As somebody said to me recently, if you are anti-aging, you are dead. Um, I remember actually a few years ago, and I think I tweeted this, when when Vincent Brown was kind of holding court uh, every night on, on The Tonight Show on what was then TV3, and I remember looking at him and saying, do you know, When will we ever have a woman who is the same age as Vincent Brown and looks her age in the way that Vincent Brown always did and is as comfortable in her skin as he was? Then when we have that, I think we will have kind of finally made progress and leveled the playing field a little bit. So would be for Martha Stewart. But, you know, for me, give me a woman who's happy in her skin, wrinkles and all. And I think it's up to older women myself included, to shout loud about the fact that we are not going to be judged on how many wrinkles we have. Your wrinkles and your lines are a sign that you have lived, you've laughed, you've cried, you've got angry. Anyway, there ended the lesson for today. Let me know how you th- what you think about that. Um, and let me know about anything else you have that you uh, want to comment on on the show today. You can send us a text or a WhatsApp to 0861 658. And as I say, we would love to hear from you. Now, down to business. The debate about deer culling and whether it's an effective way to control the deer population has been in the news again recently. And one man with a very definite view on this issue is Killian Midlachlan from Wild Ireland Animal Sanctuary in Donegal, and he joins me on the line now. How are you doing, Killian?
2: Hey, Barbara. Nice
1: to talk to you again. It's good to talk to you indeed. How are things in Donegal? It's
3: great, great. It's um, raining here today, but other than that, it's, it's everything's well.
1: Is it always raining in Donegal?
3: Not always. We've had a reasonably good few weeks, so we can't complain. <laughs> oh, good,
1: good. I'm glad to hear it. Now, you've actually written quite a long piece on your website about this. Um, but before we hear what, what your view is on the culling itself, why do we need to control our deer populations? What is the problems that having too many deers wandering around the place, what's the problems they're causing?
3: Um, when you see, this is, this is getting under the crux of the issue straight away. You know, control... We don't need to control the deer. Nature needs to control the deer. When deer populations are interfered with by humans, and I mean by culling, by habitat loss, um, roads and houses and development going into their territory, humans and animals come into conflict, and the deer population can grow exponentially and very quickly. And they can actually have a negative effect on the landscape by overgrazing, staying in the one area for too long and eating it until there's no resources left and then moving on to another area and doing the same thing. And by, by overgrazing, I mean they'll, they'll eat the bark off the trees and you can actually have deforestation caused by deer. Nice. And then, come back to my original point, inevitably they get into conflict and when there's no food left in the forest, they go out into the farmer's fields, the farmer's crops, And they can decimate a field in a very short space of time so a lot of the imbalance in nature is caused by humans
1: If we'd left everything enough alone it would have all sorted itself out
3: Nature has an amazing way of balancing itself Mm. it has been around for a lot longer than humans have and it has been in balance until we we came along and, and put our two big feet into it not knowing what we were doing and we're continuing to do that and that has been my argument that, you know, we're going straight into this with our two big feet first and not thinking about the consequences of a deer call.
1: Yeah. And is there also a problem with the fact that I only learned recently that a lot of the deer now I might be wrong on this, but you'll correct me if I am. A lot of the deer that we have here are not actually native species. Does that make a difference to what they're eating? In other words, if we just had native deer, would they be less likely to cause the kind of deforestation and desert like landscapes?
3: So the only species of deer that we still have alive today uh, that that is native to Ireland is the red deer. At one time we also had reindeer and we had Irish elk as well which are completely extinct. And then man... In his wisdom, brought in several other species of deer, fallow deer, which um, people will be familiar with yeah. in the Phoenix Park, yeah. um, and the sika deer. And the sika deer are a big problem because they they have exploded um, in population, and they're actually hybridising now with our own red deer and producing and, and uh, producing hybrids that dilute the Irish genetic poo, which is an awful shame.
1: Yeah. God. Okay. So we we have a problem clearly, um, and as I said, a lot of the conversation recently has been about how we control the deer and the kind of uh, uh, um, solutions involve culling, which I presume is literally hunting and shooting and killing the deer Um, and then there's other things like trying to control their movement by fencing them in or contraception. You believe none of those actually work?
3: It's not that I I don't believe it. I've I've looked at the evidence for it. You know, we're not the first country to to run into this problem and and a lot Other countries have done a lot of research into the effectiveness of those um, proposed solutions. And the scientific evidence says that none of those solutions work. Um, I'll tell you why culling doesn't work. Deer have a hierarchy and you will have a big stag who will hold his territory. He will gather up the healthy females. He'll put together his herd and and they will protect that territory. All the weak ones, the sick ones, the older ones, they get pushed off into the periphery and eventually nature takes its course and they pass away. Sometimes that can be a, a prolonged death um, and, and not a very nice death. They can start really quickly and humanely. The ones that, that, the, that the hunter sees, they're the healthy ones and, and they're the ones that are cold. And what happens then is that the weak individuals, the sick ones, the ones that might have TB or you know, maybe even carrying Lyme disease or whatever they, they, they get together then they have a free-for-all and the numbers just explode and if we look at the D- Department of Agriculture figures in Ireland when they first started calling deer back in nineteen ninety five, they killed around about 5,000 deer last year they killed 50,000 deer and that's a year-on-year increase cr- and that, that's screaming at me this isn't working what are mm. we doing you know the definition of stupidity is doing the same thing over and over and over and, and expecting expect a, different a different result. result. Mm. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's not working. Contraceptive contraception has been shown to work, but it's very labour-intensive. You have to get quite close to the deer and inject them with a with a vaccine that actually leaves them sterile for about ten years. That can work, but you know, Ireland is too big and there's too many deer to do that. It would yeah. be completely um, impractical. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So look, it's 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 a very difficult issue. There are issues due to to human interference that this deer population has exploded but I mean what I'm advocating for is a scientific approach to this let's talk to the experts let's see what works what doesn't work and not waste our time and, and we have to be careful as well not to verminize our wildlife yes. deer, are, deer are not vermin Yes, they're an important part of our ecosystem believe it or not we nearly lost deer in this country before um, they went extinct in every county except for County Kerry um, the deer in Killarney are the last of the original Irish deer that's um, a shocking.
1: That's a shocking thing, isn't it? In in, know, in this country, is. which is perceived abroad as being Ireland green, lush, natural, um, and and I t- I think it's a slowly dawning on on many of us, particularly those of us who live in cities and around cities, that in actual fact the country isn't the way it should be at all in order to support biodiversity.
3: Absolutely, everything is out of balance, and and farming and nature must work in balance yeah. and if they're, if they're out of balance the farms will fail nature fails and then ultimately we fail and it it is starting to dawn on people it certainly is and that was the whole purpose of me opening Wild Ireland it was to show people what we have lost and try and inspire people to preserve what we still have and maybe rewild and restore um, and
1: and for your particular work wolves are a big part of that right because I've met I've met your wolves up there in Donegal and and you believe that the reintroduction of wolves would be a good way of restoring some of this balance am I correct in that
3: Exactly and and again go back to what I believe and putting that to the to the side let's look at the scientific evidence for working and the best example of that is in Yellowstone National Park and they reintroduced wolves back in 1995 they had all the problems that we have today they they had tried to cull the deer they had road collision accidents, they had deforestation caused by huge populations of deer staying in the same area and overgrazing. They brought the wolves back in 1995 and reintroduced them and almost overnight things changed they only introduced about 14 wolves originally but that was enough to create a landscape of fear in the deer, okay 14 wolves are not going to have a big impact yeah. on the population of deer, but just their presence being there made the deer change their behavior. Right. The deer kept moving, so they didn't stay in the same area and overgraze anymore. Um, the wolves kept them on the move, and that gave the forest a chance to recover. To breathe. And there's a, great, there's a great little short documentary on YouTube, and it's called How Wolves Change Rivers, and it just summarises the whole thing, you know, and the, and the satellite imagery from pre-Wolf reintroduction introduction and after Wolf reintroduction introduction showed that the, the river through Yellowstone actually started to meander more because the, the, the banks of the rivers weren't being eroded as much because yeah. the, the plants had a chance to grow on the riverbanks because the deer weren't grazing it anymore. And a meandering river is really good news to the people that live downstream because a lot less, it slows the flow of water down. Less flooding. And stops flooding. So the wolves had a trophic cascade effect in Yellowstone. In other words, their presence changed everything and changed it for the better. And diseases um, like TB, brucellosis they all reduced because the wolves have this incredible ability to look at a herd of deer and spot the sick ones spot yeah. the weak ones and they're the ones that they chase they're the ones that they go after they're taking, they're taking the weak and the sick who otherwise would have a pretty long cruel prolonged death maybe yeah. starving to death or suffering from disease the wolves take them out it's not very nice we know that it's not a, it's not a very nice thing being killed by wolves but at the end of the day they're not suffering and yeah. the deer population the healthy guys the big strong ones they will never be caught by a wolf because yeah. they, they're fast enough to get away <laughs> and you're left, you're left behind with a very healthy population of, of deer this was shown in Europe as well by the way, in wild boar populations that t b was greatly reduced in areas where there were wolves, so that that 's good news for the farmers and we always scream and jump up and down and say "What about the farmers yeah well, there's two there's two types of farmers there's there's the livestock farmers and there's the crop farmers, and the crop farmers are are being decimated by huge populations of deer. Um, I and, mean, you know, sheep Sheep actually can be protected. Um, our neighbours on the continent are all farming with wolves. Ireland is one of the few countries now in the EU that don't have wolves, believe it or so,
1: not. So we do seem to have, and I'm just seeing it coming in here on the text line already, that, that, that you know, we've got a few texts already saying wolves will kill sheep, farmers will go crazy, it's not going to work. We have a kind of a, a mental block with wolves. And as you say, wolves were native to this country. We're not introducing a species that, that don't belong here, if
3: you like. No, Ireland was once nicknamed Wolfland because there were so many of them here. Our ancestors actually respected and revered the wolves. They called them Maktir, which is the, the son, son of the land or the yeah. son of the country. And that was almost a term of royalty. Mm. And and you know, it was when Cromwell came in that he changed our attitude and unfortunately we've never got our, our old respect back for Mother Nature uh, since. But, you know, the studies have looked at this, and, and do you know that the biggest cause of sheep death in the world is farmer neglect? Farmers kill far more sheep through neglect. Dogs, more than dogs, more than disease, more than anything else and it's down to neglect. Wolves might take a small portion of sheep. Sheep are very, very easy to protect. Um, There's some studies out there that say that a four-foot-high fence around sheep is all you need to keep wolves out, because wild wolves don't understand the concept of a fence, and they'll run along it, run around the outside of it. Rather
1: than go over it.
3: Um, sheep sheep dogs, uh, shepherd dogs, very good, very effective in the Pyrenees at protecting sheep. So, you know, we have to look at the bigger picture here. We yeah. have to look at farming. And, and, and another thing that I would say as well is that the old traditional breeds of livestock are very good at protecting themselves from right. right.
4: Um
3: It's the modern breeds that are kind of a bit silly and don't realize what a predator is. Listen, I are. think...
1: I think you do great work. And the more conversations we have about this, and I would suggest to anybody, um, if they're around Donegal or want to make the trip up to Donegal, to go and visit you in Wild Ireland and see the wolves, because they are magnificent creatures. Um, and I admire your bravery, Killian, uh, in keeping this conversation going um, and getting us to, to change our thinking. Um, I could talk to you for another hour, but anyway, unfortunately, time is against us. But I want to thank you again for, for, for talking to me today. That thank was Killian. Thank you. That was Killian McLaughlin there from the Wild Ireland Animal. Sanctuary in County Donegal. And you welcome back to Late Lunch. Barbara Scully here with you today. Now, being called a whore for wearing hoop earrings, being accused of sleeping with people to get stories, or being sent an image of your face photoshopped onto a pile of bodies, being burnt are just some of the experiences that have been faced by women in journalism, and that were revealed in a new study published this week by DCU and reported on in the journal. The report has identified a, bro- a broad range of types of online hostility account- encountered by women journalists. The overarching feeling of these journalists. Was was that social media was a double-edged sword. Joining me on the line now to discuss all of this and probably a couple of other things as well is late lunch regular, columnist with the Irish Independent and all-around good egg, Sarah Carey. How you doing, Sarah? Hello, Barbara. How are you? Ashram Grant. How are you?
0: Not too bad at all. Despite uh, social media and <laughs> all of those things that are out there making everybody's lives a bit more challenging, isn't it? Yeah, for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, listen, you used to be on Twitter. Um, And you set it on fire a few
0: times. (laughs) Accidentally, always. (laughs) But you're not on Twitter anymore. No, I got off it. I just couldn't stick it anymore. Now, one thing I would like to say now before we get into Hmm. the gender issue specific to women is... You know, men and male politicians and male public officials in particular get an awful lot of really, really nasty and dangerous abuse as well. And for example, you know, I saw a video there of even of Pascal Donahue being followed around the streets of Dublin with people calling him like really nasty names. Mm. And then also all those politicians and officials tell me that their wives and children read it all and get very upset too. Mm. So, and you'll have seen politicians, you know, withdrawing from public life and some resigning, you know, and either publicly or privately, they'll say the abuse simply isn't worth it for the impact on their families. Mm. You know, they will be willing to take it on themselves. However, separate to that, as that study showed, and globally, it's not just an Irish thing that, you know, women journalists and women in public life draw, you know, more abuse and a kind of a nastier, more intimidating style of abuse, too. Um, now, I have to say, in my case, I wasn't called names like those that you tend mm-hmm. to read out, but I had a look there recently, and there'd be a lot of vile evil, disgusting um, lots of completely distorting opinions that I might have um, and and never have at all so I'd be called a racist um, which as anybody who regularly reads my column knows I'm not Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I just lots of libeling, lots of defamation.
1: And do you think, Sarah, particularly in a small country like Ireland, where a journalist such as yourself would have a quite a degree of public profile, that once that happens once, it's far more likely to happen to you again. You're like a kind of a talisman that sets fire to something and people, as you say, misinterpret the points you're making or the opinions that you're expressing.
0: Absolutely. You get a brand, mm. for say, being the kind of person who believes in certain kinds of things or yeah. holds certain positions. And even if you don't, that brand is reinforced again and again and again and again and again. So, what do you do? Now, you know, people um, have often said to me, oh, look, that's just the way life is, and you have to get a thick skin. And true resilience is a very important thing, and you do have to tell yourself, Look, uh, you know, these are the guys in their underpants or whatever in the middle of the night Mm. and they don't really matter. But I don't think anybody, no matter how strong or resilient they are, can read this stuff about themselves and not be affected by it. And I have seen other journalists, including men, you know, really genuinely be affected by it. And um, it's sickening when you read this stuff, describing someone that you know is not you and doesn't represent you. So, you know, in the kind of 2014, 15, 16, 17, there was a time when it was really bad. And I will be nervous walking around Dublin because you'd be wondering now if somebody was going by you, well, is that someone who said something about you on yeah. Twitter? Now, there was only one occasion when someone did come up to me in person and was calling me a scumbag on the street, a man who was following me around. Really? Uh, yeah. And the weird thing was, Barbara, when I told people about that, They were extremely sympathetic about that and far more sympathetic than they were to me about online abuse.
1: But you see, isn't that exactly the problem? I often think that people online, do you know what it's like? It's like road rage. Do you yeah. know when you're in your car and you're insulated in your car and you're driving, I've done this myself and you're driving along and somebody does something stupid and you kind of have this overreaction because you're in your car and you're not really, they don't really know you and they can't really see you or so you think. Yeah. Whereas if they'd, cro- you know, if they'd bumped into you on the pavement, you'd have probably been far more like, well, oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> or excuse me. Whereas on the road, you're hitting the horn and everything. It's It's the same on social media that people have that disconnect between what they say on social media and how it lands to the person to whom they're saying it.
0: Very much so. And uh, and I think there's also a sense that people in public life have a coming. Mm. You know, um, it's just part of the process. So, um, you know, so it's a very tough one. And I think what I found, I would get frustrated with people when they tell me, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, if you had to read these things written about yourself, it would matter to you. You know, so I would never dismiss it. So if you know someone who is complaining about it, I would never dismiss it. It really, really is tough going.
1: And it's that cumulative effect as well, isn't it? It's the fact that you could possibly ignore... It's happening once or twice or very occasionally when you you know, you know write a particular thing. But when it is, as you say, you become a brand and then it's happening all the time. That's when it becomes really hard to take.
0: Yeah, it does. It really, really does. So now, what? so what tactics do you use? So I used to not want to block people because then if you blocked someone, for those who aren't familiar with Twitter, the person knows that you blocked them and then they start putting up notices, ha ha, she blocked me, you know, in this yeah. year of triumph. Instead, you can mute particular people so That's that very you do see their messages in your feed, but they don't know that they've been muted. Yeah. But um, but there is this other now sick thing that I used to do, and I've spoken to other women who would do this as well, where they would actually search. So if you'd been on TV or if you'd been on the radio, you'd search for your name afterwards on Twitter just to see what the reaction was. Yeah. And then you'd see all the worst things people were saying about you, you know. and
1: So and you're saying really don't sick. do that.
0: Oh, don't do it absolutely yeah. don't do it and I used to do it it was almost like an addiction to see what people were saying it's a really sick thing to do so just don't
1: <laughs> I do remember that. the very first time I ever did a bit of telly and it was on the Vincent Brown The Tonight Show and I was doing the, you know they used to do the newspaper thing that they're yeah. looking forward at the end of the show and I was so nervous and it was all just anyway I did it and I survived it and I was on a high like coming away from, from, the, from uh, TV3 with my face full of makeup my hair beautifully blow dried and thinking I was absolutely fantastic and I did exactly that. And the only thing I remember is the person who tweeted, "Who's the fat owl one doing the papers yes. on the Tonight Show?" I know,
0: I know. And it just that stays with you. Like, it that's did. What you remember? That's
1: all I remember. I know. Yeah.
0: And that issue about visual appearance. And I know we were that's chatting about this between ourselves recently yeah. when I was on that same program, and it was about the Joe Biden visit. And I had done loads of research yes. all day, speaking to academics, getting good insights into Biden and you know the primaries yeah. and the next election that are coming up but I didn't have time to go to the hairdresser oh dear and <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> So, I think you were the only person who actually texted me and said, oh, your comments were really interesting. Everybody else said to me, oh, Sarah, why didn't you go to the hairdresser? Your hair was a mess.
1: And that—that so, that is, I mean, I was—I don't know if you saw, I was uh, at the top of the show, I was referencing, and I don't know if you saw it um, online, your woman, Martha Stewart, you know, the American yes. kind of uh, domestic goddess guru person, and she is on the cover of Sports Illustrated uh, this month or week or however often it comes out, in her, in her, in her togs. <laughs> and she's 81. Now, she looks, she passed for 45. Um but again, you know, it's it's part of that thing where where you know that women are judged on how they look first and foremost. About it. it's it's seen as way more important than anything you yes. say or anything you achieve in any way you know in your career. How you look while you're doing it is actually what adds value to it.
0: Yeah, it really does. And um, we kind of just have to accept that and you have to find a look but do you,
1: Sarah, I know we've talked about this before, but do you have to accept that? Or should we be changing it? Because it's not a level playing field. I mean, it's up to you if you want to go to the hairdressers and you want to spend money doing that and the extra time that you need in order in order to, to look your best self or whatever. But should you feel that you have to?
0: Well, look, if you were a robust person and you didn't care about any of this, then the answer is obviously no. If you were
1: a witch person?
0: A robust oh,
1: person. Oh, robust.
0: Who just simply didn't care. I thought you said you know? a big
1: bust person.
0: <laughs> achieving that level, you know, of resilience would be yeah. great. Um, a good example of this in Britain is Mary Beard. Yes. A classicist. Yes. Who has very long uh, grey hair and she would be on documentaries and she would just get relentless abuse on yeah. social media where was she going around with her long uh, gray hair maybe she wouldn't wear makeup but she was a disgrace and there was one particular uh, person who was stalking her on social media and just would not leave her alone so she ended up actually meeting that person and having a conversation and they realized that what they were doing was unfair and she made a bit of progress with it now obviously there's an army of other critics out there but she made a big effort to try and engage with them and, uh, and make them see what they were doing was wrong so you know there is that so i think in other words having these kind of conversations and making people realize when they're listening the effect that it's having on people maybe it will help but look to be honest actually do you know one thing that really helped me barbara mm there was one particular Christmas Eve and for my radio show I had done an interview with Enda Kenny. Right. And, um, and it was just a perfectly, you know, benign interview and, uh, and a thing started on Twitter. I had been photographed in his office and then they did stuff where they photoshopped other things in the office and started this whole thing about how I'm a right-wing fascist, you know, the usual Ugh. stuff. Yeah. And, and I was really upset mm. it was Christmas Eve and I was looking at all this happening. And Philip Boucher Hayes, yeah. Radio 1 journalist got in touch with me, and he had seen what was happening, and he had been previously tracking some of those troll accounts, and he knew that about 27 accounts were all being controlled by one, one person. person. Wow! And that was a real eye-opener for me, because it showed me, it wasn't this groundswell of people yeah. who were randomly hating me. There were one or two people who didn't like me or my political positions or what I had to say. Yeah. And they were getting this ball rolling and actually trending on Twitter in Ireland. Takes almost nothing. Yeah, hundred tweets and you're trending. Yeah. So it was actually a tiny group of people. Yeah. who were just trying to attack me because they didn't like my politics, and that was a real corner that I turned. And I was always very grateful to Philip for that. But isn't that that made me see the mechanism of what was really of
1: what going was happening? And the other yeah. thing that that illustrates, I think, and which is very important, particularly going back to the kind of sexualized and violent abuse that women get, is that it generally comes from men. Um, I know the criticism of how you look can very often come from women, but the, 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 the kind of the more, the rougher edge of it very often comes from men. So we need men to step up to the plate on this one and do like Philip Boucher-Hayes and be allies. Do you know what I mean? And and yeah. call it out.
0: That was the other effect. And in a way, this was um more profound and a bit more toxic was I would see these remarks going on. And then I will get upset by the bystanders.
1: Yes, yeah. So
0: I've always felt very strongly, and even as a child, when I saw people being bullied and attacked, I would intervene. Yeah. So I used to get angry with my friends who, when this would be going on... They'd stand back
1: and do nothing.
0: And I, what I always really wanted was someone to actually intervene and say, "That's not fair. Just stop it." Brilliant. You know, listen. So it was weird how that affected personal relationships as well as just worrying about these anonymous trolls. Yourself,
1: can you stay with me? We have to take an ad break, but I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about, uh, about mass and the coronation. Oh yes. <laughs> so yes. stay with well, me. Mass, we'll be, right. <laughs> we'll be back after the break. Andrew, welcome back to The Late Lunch. This is Barbara Scully with you and I'm talking to Irish independent columnist Sarah Carey. We've been talking about social media and I guess on the same theme kind of sort of um, I just wanted to ask you what you made of all the big hoo-ha over Matt Barrett um, posting posts on Instagram from the coronation and for those in case anybody doesn't know Matt Barrett is our Taoiseach Leo Varadkar's partner he accompanied uh, the Taoiseach to the coronation of King Charles there the other week along with um, our president Michael T Higgins and his wife Sabina and it's the first time Irish leaders were at a coronation because obviously the last coronation was back in the dark ages and um, um, so we've all come on and we're all mature and we're all everything. But <laughs> unfortunately, Matt sent a few Instagram and they were quite funny, actually, some of the things that he said. I think the
0: technical term is irreverent. They, you
1: were, know. they were irreverent. He was, he was, he was, he was posting what all the rest of us were thinking, kind of. Um, but he posted it to a closed his closed group friends, if you like, on Instagram. But obviously somebody isn't as much of a friend as he yeah. thought they were because they made the papers. Do you think it was a whole load of hoo ha about nothing very much?
0: No, no. I was mortified. Where are you? Absolutely mortified. Now regular listeners to this show. Yes, will I'm know just gonna that, say um, you
1: need to own up now. Go on to be a big royalist.
0: I'm very interested in the monarchy. So when Queen Elizabeth died, I went over to the Langan State, you know, to get a flavour of the history and understand the context of the monarchy in the UK.
1: That's a great excuse. I still can't get over the fact that I have a friend who actually jumped on a plane and went over and stood for how long?
0: Uh, Six hours Six hours It wasn't bad Yeah, no, we were there On the first day My son came with me And uh, so David Beckham Had to do 13 and a half But we only had to do six (laughs) Good woman uh, But that insight Into the place Of the monarchy And this Mm. thousand Year old um, or I don't want To say regime But institution Yeah um, you know, the history is extraordinary, and that coronation ceremony goes right back to biblical times, you know, and the anointing of King Solomon, and that current ceremony goes back to Edward the Confessor. So, like, this is a really rich, deep history, and no one else is doing this <laughs> anywhere in the world, certainly not in Europe, you yeah. know. So, and um, and Ireland was, I think, one of the only countries where... It wasn't just the head of state that was invited. We got to send our prime minister too. I see. Uh, yeah, because, you know, off the relations, you know, between the two countries. So it was a privilege to be there. And sure I'd have loved to have been there. I can't believe they didn't invite
1: you. Did they know you stood for six hours? <laughs> you should no, have told they wouldn't
0: know about that. <laughs> so anyway... You know, it was a huge privilege, yeah. you know, for uh, Dr. Barrett to be there as the partner, um, you know, of the Shock, and, uh, and look, speaking of social media, I know that Leo gets an awful lot of really homophobic abuse, yes. you know, online. Like, it's yes. really, really nasty. It is, I agree. And, and I'm sure that's extremely difficult for him. And as I said earlier, for any politicians mm. and their families, you know, having to be subjected to this, But, and look, fine, everyone's free to watch the telly and watch the coronation ceremony and laugh at the costumes and go, this is all a load of hokum, what on earth are they doing this for? But if you're there at a state event, invited in your capacity as the partner of the Prime Minister, come on, you have to behave, and you have there's a diplomacy, there's decorum, there's respect for the institutions, you know, and you can't be on Instagram making smart comments to your group of 350 friends. (laughs) Close friends, close friends. It's not like it was, you know, five or six. So, of course, it was going to end up in the press. So he should have had more judgment and he should have had more respect, I think, for the process. So, look, he did apologize. It was all terribly embarrassing. I think he was right to apologize, you know, and fine, everybody makes mistakes. And probably he hasn't been at too many of those occasions between COVID and all of this stuff. But... (laughs) He is a grown-up, and yeah, I hope is. now the next time
4: he'll know seen,
0: he's brought somewhere he'll know how to behave. Yeah, so, and I think as well, Barbara. I suppose um, my feelings about it would be as well. Uh, shaped by that sense of, you know, don't show us up in front of the visitors. Well, there, I'm I think
1: I think a lot of people felt that, like, you know what I mean? I do. I think that a lot of people felt maybe it was a bit, you know, we're, we're not able to be at the, the big posh events, because it doesn't get much posher than a coronation, really, does it?
0: Yeah, and even last night, I was entertaining some uh, visitors uh, to Dublin, the hosts of the Rest Restless History podcast, um, Tom Holland and Dominic Sandbrook. They were in town recording um, a series of Irish episodes and a few of us, you know, met them and took them out for the evening. And and it was actually such a relief then when the night was over. No one had misbehaved. We all had a good conversation. (laughs) We could send them back to England and they were tweeting, oh, thank you for the warm welcome. (laughs) Nobody made... So and, I would be,
1: and I would kind of be exactly the opposite. I'd like to be kind of rattling people's cages a little bit, which is probably why I have slightly more sympathy for Matt uh, the, and his faux pas than you did. Listen, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, uh, Sarah. Your insights are always great. Uh, so, look, thank, thanks a million for that. I really thank enjoyed it. Thank you for it. having me.
0: Enjoy the rest of the show, <laughs> OK,
1: thanks a million. And now, after all of that, I think, uh, what better than a little bit of love from Tom Grady. Now, we will shortly be uh, in the madness that is the exam season in Ireland where which is a time that's always marked in my head by the media giving loads of space and time to the various exams as they proceed through. Something that I don't think is particularly helpful uh, for anybody but particularly for the students of either the junior or the leaving cert. An exam time can be stressful not just for the students themselves but also for parents as we wonder how we should best help our little darlings get through the arduous weeks of exams. So to talk about all this and more I'm joined now by Ray Langan who is a study skills coach and online educator and teen behavioural expert, Ray. Where the hell were you when I needed you a few years ago?
2: Hiya, Barbara. Well, the good thing is that the exams are happening. That's good. After the last two or three years uh, with COVID, at least we have a little little bit of normality. So we know the exams are happening, but a lot of people, as we know, are on tender hooks. A lot of families are uh, on eggshells at the moment. And the big thing is to get through the next month uh, with success.
1: Right okay so you think I mean I thought I kind of now my kids are, are, are all adults now but I, I kind of had a feeling that some kids were delighted not to have been sitting exams during COVID.
2: Yes and uh, this year's six years are the cohort of students that actually didn't do the junior, the junior and at the time obviously there was a lot of relief Yeah, um, but that's had a big knock-on effect and I can tell you from being working with six years all over the country um, with my Raise the Game uh, Motivational Study Skills seminar, the big feedback I get from teachers across the board, this group are very quiet. And this group have had a lot of, um, I suppose, knock-on effects from not sitting that state state exam. And psychologically, they haven't had a junior cert. So for some of them, I'm not saying all of them, um, this, this, you know, that adds a level of stress yeah. Uh, and that adds, adds a level of anxiety. And for parents at the moment, it's important right now uh, just to take a few deep breaths yeah. and uh, I suppose to, uh, to have the magic sponge ready and uh, just to be there for them.
1: The magic sponge, is that a cake or is that to wipe their brows?
2: Well, it could be a bit of both, <laughs> I suppose. I suppose, and um, you know what I talk about for for parents because obviously every household is different, uh, and every student is different, yeah. and for some students right now, whether you 're junior at leaving search you know i I get this kind of and the big knock on effect I see for junior search students is there 's a whole philosophy out there that because the junior search was cancelled it 's not that important, and I hear this over and over and over again I'm sure it 's only the junior search, but yeah. the junior search is important because it 's the foundation for the leaving cert. And it's that first big test. So it's an important milestone. And one thing, Barbara, that was shown out of COVID, this generation missed a lot of milestones. And that's yeah. had a big knock-on effect. So the junior cert and leaving cert, while people say, oh, it's only a memory test, they're important milestones in anyone's life that exam conditions are there, um, I suppose, to, 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 to help students, I suppose, on a greater level, cope with, with, with greater anxieties in life. And pressure. Exactly.
1: as a parent and again I mean I can remember back, I mean it wasn't that long ago um, I can remember my my own girls uh, sitting the leave insert and one of the things that I think as a parent is very hard to know is how much is too little and how much is too much. Like you don't want to be fussing over them to the extent that you're only making the stress worse and yet you don't want to be completely disengaged from it you want them to know that you're there and that you're doing your best to support them even though that, you know, they can be, I mean, teenagers are grumpy at the best of times, but obviously when they're under pressure, they can be quite uncommunicative. And so it can be very hard for parents to know where to pitch it, if you like, where to pitch the help.
2: I, exactly. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dance. Yeah. And the one thing that a parent has to create is a positive environment. And right. what I mean by that is, what well, your son and your daughter and your child, it's important for them to feel safe. So when they do want to reach out, when they are scared, because exams bring, uh, you know, two out of three teenagers, 67% of students experience exam anxiety. So when, and I remember the night before my own mock exams, running into my dad and standing at the mantelpiece and I told him I'm going to fail. And I started crying and I said, I didn't want to go in. And he made me go in. He made me face that down. But I was so grateful afterwards. Because I remember coming home the next day, he said, how did you get on? I said, I think I failed. And he said, good, that'll learn you. And <laughs> my God, it did, because I went from 35 in the mock to 70 in the actual exam. Sometimes we need the failure. Yeah. But the big thing was he provided the support and he almost gave me that permission to fail. And that's one of the big things. There's a fantastic book, The Gift of Failure, Jessica Leahy, where parents are trying to shield and buffer and bubble wrap yeah. To the point where they don't want their team to fail. And failure is an important part of life. learning.
1: Yeah, gosh, that's really interesting. What are the main mistakes then, do you think, that parents make when they think they're helping their kids coming up and during the exam time?
2: Well, it's a, again, it depends on the parent attention, the teenager. I think making such a big deal out of things. Right. Um, it's really to kind of, sometimes, you know, I hear this from a lot of, just step back. I always say, get yeah, step back, give them the space so they can step back up and it's been there and what i see over and over and over again with parents is fussing yeah. being involved it's scheduling you know this generation gen z have had their life scheduled to bits their mom are there for the texts they're running down with the bag and the boots and all the gear and everything. and it's it that's created an over-reliance so the parents are acting like a, a, a crutch a pa if you yeah. want a, a chauffeur and while you, you, all these things come from a good place, mm. parents obviously want to help their, their child succeed. Mm. It is about stepping back to give them the space. So I would say to stop fussing and to actually, the purpose, I think, is to leverage the leaving cert, leverage the junior cert, to actually see how does your child, how does your teenager deal with stress and anxiety? And what we want is a positive form of stress. And that's important.
1: Right, a positive form of stress. Explain that a little bit to me now.
2: Yeah, so if you think about any exam or performance mm. or getting up on stage or doing anything, there is what's called performance nerves. Right. So that's a healthy level of stress that's required to get you through the thing, to push you. So okay, I know about that,
1: that one. And that's a
2: short-term <laughs> stress. So, right. Uh, you know, and really what you're trying to do is get a, get a, a person... To be able to deal with stress so we want what's called tolerable stress what we don't want is toxic stress and unfortunately for a lot of teenagers today over the last number of years and for this perfect storm of covid uh, social media screen addiction you know there's a lot of people who are, suffer ongoing stress and that has a big impact on the teenage brain so really what a parent you know should be focusing on is really just how is my how's my how's my child coping under these conditions? And obviously if they're really struggling, that's when you get on board, that's when the magic, as I said, sponge comes out. But sometimes they need a little bit of stress. So it's this dance in the middle.
1: Right. Do you think sometimes that parents, because I, I have a suspicion, and obviously not myself, but I, I think I've seen this in other parents because <laughs> I'm so perfect, Um is that sometimes they think that their children's performance in these state exams, particularly in the Leaving Cert, is a reflection on them as parents. And so therefore they have a kind of, they have skin in the game of wanting the child, even if the child wants to do an apprenticeship, doesn't necessarily want to go to to college, uh, but they have this thing where they want their child to get the maximum points because it reflects on them.
2: Exactly. And this is something called secondary anxiety. So it trickles down... So we're a mom or a dad, and I've seen this over and over and over again with students that I've coached over the years. It's the mom or the dad pushing. And again, it all comes from a good place. Yeah, And, and we, you and I both know, and everybody knows, look, I've heard this over and over again, that leaving cert is not the be all and end all of everything. But it's still very important when you're 17 or 18 years of age and you've spent the last 14 years in the education system. So, you know, a parent, if they didn't do well or they dropped out of school at an early stage or they left education early or they don't have a degree, they tend, that, that's called a void. And out of that void, there tends to come a, a, an anxiety and an inner pressure then that you want your own child to succeed, And, you know, I, I would suggest that sometimes, you know, if your teen is anxious, if they're struggling, if, they, you know, you, 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 and you're putting, and I hear this a lot from parents as well, they say, I don't want to put them under pressure. So what's really important is that you have to, um, you know, from a parental perspective, uh, ask yourself, is this, is this me pushing onto them something because of something I don't have, or is this me wanting for them to do the best? For them. The number one thing is a fantastic book, uh, Mindset by Carol Dweck, and she talks about the growth mindset. Really, the, with, with parents, what you want to be doing is focusing on choices. Right. Give your teen choices. So, for example, I was speaking to a parent yesterday. She said, My son is just not motivated for the junior cert. Well, what do I do? You know, do I take him out of football? Do I, uh, you know, he's not going on a trip this summer? He's not going to de- do TY? Well, that's, that's punishment. Nice. And the old carrot and stick stuff doesn't work with this. You know, we, what we're really into now is the science of motivation. But what was, does work is when you sit your child or your son or your daughter down and say, well, it's your choice how you want this to go. Do you want to do it the hard way or the easy way? Do you want to, you know, do it at 50% or do you want to give it 100%? And now they have ownership of their choice and that gives them a sense of control. And that's what leads to self uh, healthy self-esteem
1: Yeah and surely though you need to balance it as well with with ensuring that your child continues with whatever hobbies whether it be sport you know playing football or or doing whatever you like there um, and taking a little bit of time out as well you don't want it to become all consuming
2: Absolutely I mean you know one of the things we want is is balance uh, you know, we hear, hear this word all the time. That, you know, I know from my own experience. The times I've done best in exams is when I uh, when I get into running, right? Uh, you know, and I, you know, people. What I over and over again, the students who come to me that are stressed out a bit. I ask them, "When was the last time you went for a run, a walk, the gym?" And everything gets cut out at this stage. And again, yeah. it depends on the student, but it is about maintaining uh, your interest. It is about every day going for uh, a walk, and that's for the parents as well. Because I know at this time of year with a lot of parents who say, Okay, for the next three, four, five weeks I've shut everything down. It's just about getting them through the exams. And and, and I understand where that comes from, but it's equally important that the parent is 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 doing their own little thing every single day to taper their own anxiety mm. so that when they're interacting with their teen, they're not projecting that anxiety on to them. A nice, calm home. All
1: right. Do you think, uh, on a, you know, and I know this is the area that you work in, but I mean, one of the things that strikes me is that the whole exam system, uh, the points is different, but it hasn't changed since the day I sat my leave and search in 1979. Is it? Is it really the best way that we have of Testing our children or deciding where they are academically?
2: Well, uh, I suppose the focus of the Leaving Cert is very much around mathematics and English, and you know, English, so from linguistic and mathematical intelligence. So it really kind of focuses on two intelligence. But if you're a good sports person, if you're great at music, if you're great with people, uh, if you're into the environment, You know, the the leaving cert does not tell you that, you know, that that's where you're going to end up working in your life. However, one thing that was proven, Barbara, was that during COVID, um, you know, when they had to cancel a leaving cert for the first time in the state's history, they failed to come up with a a very good alternative. And that's where we got into the predicted marking. And now we've had a massive amount of grade inflation, and that has not served anybody. And I know from talking to teachers all over the country, but really what you're asking is, is the leaving cert... Fit for, for purpose, purpose. and are we, is our education system suitable for the world that we're now entering into and AI is coming fast never mind with all the screen stuff and there's very much an argument to say that uh, we aren't however you know people ask me why do I need to study geography well you know the next Greta Thunberg could be sitting in your class why do I need to study science well the yeah. next Marie Curie could be in your class so yeah. we need to expose we need to explore. But I went back and didn't leave in history a number of years ago and I found it fascinating because there was a project in that. You could pick your own project and hand that in before. And I, I I just think that maybe what we need to do is just join up the thinking more. And I know with the UCAS system, the emphasis is you get your college place before and then if you hit the points, you get the place. Right. So it's more of a motivation for the students to do the study to say, well, if I get this, I'm going to go there rather than this. You know, massive competition that really only suits, you know, the medical people or the, you know, the people going for the, over the 500, the dentists and all of that type of stuff. So there's definitely, we know, two thirds of students get under 400 points and they're right. going to work with their hands. There's, you know, merit now for the, I think there should be a massive um waiting put towards apprenticeships and you know the, the, what we would call the old tech system and craftsmanship is really important and we've killed creativity and we know right brain learning creativity this is where it's at for the 21st century so i would like to see more of a focus on the arts and the creative subject
1: right good good advice um, just uh your website, right, where people, because I know, as I say, that I'm sure people's heads are exploding um, when they're dealing with, with children coming up to this. So, and I know you've got um your top 10 tips for parents to help your teen to study and, and to negotiate the next few weeks. Give us your website there so that people can go on there and, and, and look at that for themselves.
2: Absolutely. Well, I suppose after all of that, just to take a deep breath, because, uh, you know, for any parent, um uh, it, you know there's a lot there's a lot to take on board uh, yeah. at this stage but my website if anyone wants to get in touch is www.raise the game it's r-a-y-s-e raisethegame.com
1: Very good very good Ray listen it was great to talk to you and I'm so glad I don't have to negotiate <laughs> exams anymore um, so my sympathies to anybody who is uh, heading into that direction but as I say more help is available from raisethegame.com Calm, Time for a break. you welcome back to Late Lunch. Barbara Scully here. Can I just say to John Conlon in Bally McKenney, who sent us in a photograph the other day, we were talking about birds' nests, of the birds' nest that's under the bonnet of a jeep, I think. He sent me in another photograph. Six eggs. I won't be here next week, John, but I hope you keep everybody posted um, when th- those eggs hatch. I'm dying to know what's in that I know it's a bird, but I don't know what kind of a bird it is, so keep us posted on that. Now, comedy has long mainly been the preserve of men. And even today, there aren't too many women on the circuit and far fewer at the very top level of the big stadium shows but I think things are changing and there are two Dublin women who are starting to make waves in the comedy world and they are starting by putting together what promises to be a very funny female comedy night next month. To tell me all about it I am joined by one of those women now Orla Doherty who is one half of Chatterbox the comedy writing duo with Val Troy. How you doing Orla?
5: Hi Barbara, how are you? Thanks a million for having me on the show.
1: That's all right. You're very welcome. I know you're talking to us from Prague.
5: I am. I flew in from Dublin this morning.
1: Excellent. Running around, just back from physio, so I'm feeling loose. You feel oh, <laughs> right. We'll leave that yeah. yeah. Well, whatever I'm way we want to, <laughs> whatever way we want to take that. Tell me what is going on next month in Dublin in Whelan's
5: So myself and Val Troy uh, met in an online writing group and we sort of, long story short, we collaborated on writing a a comedy screenplay about menopause. And uh, Val then decided to try her hand at stand-up comedy and loved it. And meanwhile, while all this was happening... um, the Funny Women organisation, which was founded 20 years ago in the UK by Lynn Parker, was looking for somebody to sort of relaunch the Dublin chapter. They've done it several years and through COVID, obviously, same as everything else, it kind of fell to the side. But myself and Val said, why don't we give it a go? Like, we, I mean, I, I've done stand-up comedy. I did it for about a year and I did Electric Picnic and I hosted clubs out in Port Marnock. But I, you know, didn't do it for the last five years, but I've been writing comedy and we both said, sure, look, we're, we're, I'm 52, Val is nearly 50, and we've already been sort of throwing you know, caution to the wind and we're just putting ourselves out there. And the Funny Woman uh, group were delighted that we would take it on. And so we've been in touch with some of the top uh, female comedians in Ireland and we've a great lineup ready to go. On the 19th of June in Wheelands, and the the exciting thing is, Barbara, we we decided we would book Little Wheelands, which hosts 50 people. Yeah, and literally within six hours, the seats were all sold out. So we were wow. thinking, Jesus, what do we do here? So, so loads of people were disappointed. Um, not not obviously because myself and Val are just do, doing it, but the, the lineup <laughs> itself is fab- fabulous. Yeah. Right? and it's sort of everything that's happening so quickly. So then we said, well, what if we just went to the main stage in Wheelands, which you know can take a lot more people? And they were more than delighted to do it. And uh, we think we're going to pull it off. So we're really looking forward to it. We, we've got—I'll tell you who we've got coming in. Please Lee do. Douglas. Jessica Collins, Emily Ashmore, Kate Feeney, Claire Roach, and then our headline is Louise O'Toole, and they're all very well-established comedians um, on the Irish and UK circuit, actually. So we're we're absolutely thrilled that they're going to be there, and it's an you know the the fact that it's an all-women lineup is what's making it that's, so exciting for us.
1: Yeah, I think that's great, and these aren't <laughs> old ones like you and Val. These are some of these are younger women.
5: Well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'd say let's have a look at it. Yeah, I'd say most of them are in their early to mid-twenties. There's one or two in their late thirties. And then there's myself and Val. And then there's actually um, a spot open for a matriarch. I don't know if you're interested, Barbara, but we're looking for one more very wise uh, and savvy uh, female (laughs) to join us. And, And we thought you would be the perfect...
1: This. What do you think? What do you think? It's Talk a- about putting me on the spot. <laughs> I think listeners should know that I got a call the other day uh, from this woman asking me, should I pop in for a coffee? Which I did yesterday, and I came out feeling news. punch drunk, like as if I'd been run over. Uh, and I think whizzling. I kind of said, maybe I'm not a, co- I am not a comedian. Um, so I, oh yeah, look I'll know, be there. Be like you're, you're. We we would just be thrilled to have
5: you because you're, you're the, you're, the story stories you tell on Instagram, anybody who follows you, I'd be rolling around laughing. And that's, that's what makes it even more funny, it's your delivery, and I just think it would be wonderful to have, we've got women in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and now... Okay, so
1: Barbara. you want a real owl one, in her 60s, so Scully <laughs> will
5: do. Be the, <laughs> it would be, no! God! I mean, what an honour it would be to have you there. Oh, look! Everybody would love to see you. Louise, can is we talk yet? to
1: Orla every week on the programme, because I'm kind of liking all this smoke in the studio. <laughs> it's really great. <laughs> Listen, where... So this is coming up in Big Whelan's, which is the Big main venue
5: where all the big acts perform um, Ed Sheeran so Ed has Sheeran, been there hasn't he yeah. Ed Sheeran and, and, and now Chatterbox and now Barbara's Gully. <laughs> and uh, Here she goes we're going to be the, the 19th of June it's a Monday night right? It's summertime and uh, tickets the funny thing is we thought tickets were going on sale tomorrow they're actually on sale right now so you can jump onto dot wheelandslive.com and um, it'll be in the comedy section um, I, tickets are 10 euro so that's cheap um, at half the price it is. There's a bar. There's going to. It's going to be all seating. So you know how sometimes when bands are there, they it's mostly standing room. But they're going to put in seats for everybody. So it'll be nice and comfy. You can have a giggle. Um... And you can have a few drinks while you're at it. You can definitely have a few drinks. Do yeah. you think, Orla,
1: well, I know you've been kind of, as you said, you've done stand-up comedy before. Um, so And you've been in this, in this arena for a while now. But I mean, there was, I can remember when I started doing this media stuff about 12 years ago, there was a thing, there was two things, two things that went around. Number one is that women hadn't got the voice for radio because our voices were too high-pitched and weren't good for radio, um, which yeah. was clearly nonsense. And then the second one was that women just aren't really that funny. I'm thinking of all the male panel shows, you know, that are on... Not Not so much on on Irish channels, but on the UK channels, which are all wall to wall men shooting the breeze about current affairs and about funny stuff and being funny. And they are funny. But I don't know why we don't have more women doing that, because it's not true that women aren't funny.
5: No, it's changing. And that's such a, you know, everybody uses that cliche, women are just not funny. Yeah. And it's changing. I mean, look at the likes of, you know, Diana Payne and, and Joanne McNally is just killing it. And,
1: she certainly and is. I
5: think, it, and it, 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 there is, like, the lineup that we have, those women, are, they tour, I'd say they're four or five nights a week now, all over Ireland. Some of them are in the UK. Lee Douglas is flying over from the UK. She uh, is from Bray. But women are really starting to make their mark. And this, you know, the Funny Women itself is a great organization and they've been around, as I said, for 20 years. And they're now everywhere. They're in the US, they're in Singapore, they're in Australia. Um, And we're hoping just to really kickstart it again and just make our mark.
1: And I have to say, it's a great... It's a great night out. Going to a comedy show is a great night out. You know, gather a few girlfriends together or boyfriend. Bring your men along as well. Yeah, um, and, we'll you know, it's, <laughs> it's it's great crack if you bring a few people. My daughter is mad into comedy and we've been to a few comedy oh, gigs great. recently because the other one who's killing it, not perhaps at the same level that Joanne McNally, who I know is just back from Dubai, but Deirdre O'Kane's show as well that's touring at She's the moment fantastic. is brilliant. Yeah. And two of the There's best so comedy comedy writers in the UK are Sharon Horgan and Lisa McGee who did Derry
5: Girls. Really brilliant
1: Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, and, women. You, and you've
5: got the dirt birds. I mean yeah. there's, there's, there's a lot and Mammy Banter is actually going to be at Wheelings the night after us. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but she's hilarious.
1: I know the name, um, yeah, I think I'd follow her on social North.
5: media. Um but listen, your daughter will be so proud now to see you up on the stage. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Do you think? Do you think I can't wait to meet her <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell her she's
1: coming, so definitely. Yeah. So listen. Brilliant. You and Val are chatterbox and you are called your chatterbox. We are chatter, it's we underscore r underscore chatterbox, chatterbox on Instagram. And people should follow you there because you're working on other projects as well. Just briefly tell me. you do the a yeah. script,
5: I think. So the, the screenplay we did is called Menopause was long listed with the female pilot club. And that was sort of our first big break. And we were thrilled about that. So we right. decided, well, somebody must have read it and thought it was funny. So now we've got another one in the works um, called Busted and... I'll let you decide what you want that to think. Yeah, yep. that might be well. Brilliant. Um, and and then I've also written a screenplay with Dave uh, Gilner, who is you may know David Gilner. He and I also An actor. wrote a funny one called Etha Allen, but you're. The writing is what sort of is my passion but good. You know, getting on stage is always a bit of fun too. Brilliant. We'll
1: look, at I'm, re- I'm actually really looking forward to it. That's Funny Women Live in Wheelands on the 19th of June at 8pm. Orla, thanks so much for taking our Thank call so today. Much, really appreciate it. That's 19th. it for today. Thank you to Louise Walsh for producing and keeping me on track. Eddie's next, Don't Go Away, leaving you with the aforementioned Ed Sheeran. I'll see you again tomorrow.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot
1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.